Blog Talk Radio. Diabetes Late Night. Sometimes you feel insecure. Trust me, babe, I understand. Even with no manicure, just know that I still hold your hand. You look so good when you walk by. Sexy comes in every side. Keep wearing that. You ain't playing. You got yourself a new man. That's Kanye's workout plan. I call that baby fat. Baby fat. But you sure look good to me, I think. You're so beautiful. soundtrack courtesy of Sony Music. Now, many women get upset at their bodies when they're first diagnosed with diabetes because they feel like their bodies let them down. But many of us don't really know what's going on in our bodies to begin with. How well do you actually know your vagina? Yes, it's Mr. Divabetic. I have to ask these questions every month on our show. Well, a new study by the Association of Reproductive Health Professionals showed that more than half of, half of women lack basic knowledge when it comes to understanding their genitalia. Misconceptions can prevent you from managing your diabetes as well as having a happy, healthy, satisfying sex life, especially after you hit 40. So it's important to know exactly what's going on down there, which is why for the next hour I will be talking to a leading gynecologist, Dr. Andrea Chisholm, about how a woman's body, if she's living with type 1 or type 2 diabetes, may change as she ages. And we'll be taking your calls at 347-215-8551. You know, Truth be told, I've never been to a gynecologist, and uh, so I invited several of the members of the DivaBetic Club to call in or send in their questions tonight to ask Dr. Andrea. And some of the questions I got, I'm going to read to you from the Internet. We'll be answering a little later. Uh, Monica from Buffalo says, my daughter got her first period at the age of eight, and I think I'm having hot flashes now, but I'm only 33. Is there something wrong with the two of us, why she's so early and I'm, I'm so early with my is this perimenopause? I'll have to ask Dr. Andrea for you, Monica. Uh, Gwen from Washington, D.C. wrote in, and she wants to know, how long is too long to be on the pill? Can it, can it stop my chances of ever having a baby? And finally, Vivian from Santa Cruz, California, you know I used to live there, everybody, wants to know if Caitlyn Jenner will be able to have a period. Okay, well, I'm going to go out on a limb right now and say, Vivian, I don't really think uh, Caitlin is going to have to worry about having a period, but I will let Dr. Andrea answer that question as well as the two others shortly. In the meantime, if you're fascinated about Bruce Jenner's transformation and his recent appearance on the Vanity Fair cover, guess what? You can tune in next Tuesday night for Diabetes Late Night on June 9th because I'll be interviewing a trans woman from New York City about her experience having a sex change and what she thinks of the Bruce Caitlyn Jenner story as, as well as some of the related stories we're seeing on the TV. For me, I have to say honestly because I have received a lot of emails about this topic, uh, I think it's truly a story of acceptance and the courage uh, Bruce or Caitlin, as she's being called, has to accept what they really are on the inside and out. And I hope uh, in my heart that Caitlin's story is inspiring more people to face issues that they're holding them back and to live out their true lives, especially if you're living with diabetes. I think it's so important to be open and talk about it with friends and family and create a healthcare entourage around you. So maybe uh, there's some inspiration there for you in a, in a Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner kind of way. Uh, now, before we get things started, let's take a minute to donate to DivaBetic at 
org. Your tax-deductible contributions are greatly appreciated. Before we kick off the night, let's hear another song from one of the guest stars on the Empire soundtrack, courtesy of Sony Music. This star won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 2007. And there's nothing like Jennifer Hudson because she's going to come back to Broadway. But right now, let's hear whatever makes you happy. Are you having a hard time accepting your body going through changes that come with age? Well, listen, Joan Collins said she never thinks about her age. She believes your age is totally how you feel. She's seen 35-year-old women who are old, and she's seen people who are 75 who are young. As long as she looks after herself physically, mentally, and emotionally, Joan Collins says she's going to stay young. On that note, it's time to welcome my special guest, I'm really excited to have her on the show. Please walk to, uh, welcome Dr. Andrea Chisholm. Hello, doctor. Hi, Max. Um, I'm very excited to be here. That's our studio audience. They love to <laughs> applaud our, our fans today. Um, and and, and wh- I want to start by saying that I think Caitlin looked amazing on the cover of Vanity Fair. She really does, doesn't she? Yeah. Yes, just Do you amazing. Think she looks like Jessica Lange that's been going all over the Internet for a couple uh, hours now that people think she looks a lot like Jessica Lange. Uh, now that you say that, maybe a little bit, yeah. Well, can she have her period? No. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think she could. No okay. uterus, no uterus, no period. No okay, ovaries, so. no uterus, no period. So, Vivian, if you're listening, we just got one question off the um, off the docket. Now, um, before we get things started, let's um, and we start talking to some of our listeners and some of the people calling in, can you just tell us a little bit about your experience as a doctor and the kinds of patients you see on a regular basis? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a general uh, obstetrician and gynecologist, and I take care of a, a, a very wide, diverse patient population, which is um, something that I really enjoy. I'm in an urban setting and um, uh, have provided general gynecologic care uh, for adolescents to postmenopausal women for a few more years now than I'd like to say. <laughs> okay, do you agree with that? Um statistic that more than half women lack basic knowledge when it comes to understanding their genitalia? Yeah, I absolutely would agree with that statistic. And and I think in general, perhaps we don't even do as, as good a job as we should as physicians in educating women. What do you think is like one of the biggest misconceptions? Um, that's a tough one because there's, there's, there's several. Um, I think I think a lot of women really don't understand uh what um what their period is, uh why it happens. I don't think women really have a very good handle on that and then certainly the menopausal tra- transition just throws a lot of women for for a loop and um uh, that's that's an that's a very important transition that women need to understand. All right, well, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what is what does your uh, period really mean, and then we'll get into, I think it's called perimenopausal and menopause. Pause, sure. Okay, so um, when a girl, when a girl, and, and you know, average age is about age uh, 11 to 12, although it, it can happen earlier and be normal, and we are actually seeing that these days, uh, but from that age when uh, the, a woman's uh, body is mature enough, uh, the menstrual cycle starts. And it's a, a very complicated uh, cascade involving structures in the brain and then the ovaries and then the uterus, which is sort of the, the end, the end of the, uh, the, end of the uh, um, interaction. It sort of responds to all the other changes. Uh, what happens is at that point uh, a cycle is established with hormones being released from the brain that stimulate the ovaries in a, a very regimented fashion to result in ovulation. 
and then menstruation. And actually, when you start to bleed, it's actually the beginning of the next cycle. And you can't and you don't bleed regularly unless you ovulate. So you have to ovulate to have your period. And when you have your period, it's not the end of your cycle. It's the beginning of a new one. And I think that's a big misconception for women. Yeah, As because we, everyone always says, oh, my period's ended, but that's actually, you're saying it's just begun. Yeah, when people say my cycle's ending, it's actually really a new cycle starting again, which is... Um uh, I, I, a lot of women don't understand. And then as we as we go through our reproductive years, so, um, you know, round about once our period starts, and yes, reproductive years start in our early teens, which is a positively scary, scary thought and why it's important for younger girls if they are sexually active to be on birth control. But that's a story for another day. Um, as we, so until, so all those years when we're in our child childbearing years. Um, if pregnancy doesn't happen, then you get your mens- your menses and then the whole and that's when the whole cycle is starting again. But as we get older, as we get into our forties, um, we start to have some changes. And this is a time that that women uh, really don't understand what's going on because they're they're not menopausal, and there's a lot of talk about what happens in menopause, and there's a lot of talk about what happens when you're younger and you're 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 uh, getting pregnant and reproducing and having regular cycles. But in this time between the 40s and the early 50s, women will start to have symptoms of what we call perimenopause. Maybe they miss a period here or there. Maybe they start to have more PMS symptoms that they didn't have when they were younger. Um, maybe they start to have more anxiety. Maybe they were never an anxious person, but now they start to have anxiety. And what's happening here is that the hormones are still being produced in, in a level to allow ovulation sometimes, but they're a little bit off. And when those hormones are a little bit off, we know that there's some interaction with that in serotonin. Serotonin is a hormone or a neurotransmitter in the brain, which helps maintain mood and, and um, you know, a sense of well-being. And when that's off, um, then anxiety and some um, uh, agitation and more of these PMS symptoms can, can arise. It's also a time where with this, these cycles where you're not ovulating, um, you can start to have uh, heavier bleeding and irregularities of your bleeding start to show up. So it's very common for women to present to the gynecologist with episodes of months of missed periods and then episodes of heavy bleeding or just uh, heavy heavy bleeding um, uh, that is that is that is in a cycle as well because this is a time when things like fibroids and uterine polyps start to show up, and then when you get to menopause. So wait, is then, that, so that's somewhat normal then to have that happen, perhaps well, that you would have you, a little inconsistency would be something that. Uh, and that's not perimenopausal. That's before that. Is that what you're well, saying? Well, that's a little bit. So, yeah. So the so the changes in bleeding and the changes in the symptoms. And I I also forgot to say those those hot flashes, those night sweats that happen during this period as well. That can go on for about seven years before the menopause actually happens. Well, um, so the average woman, age of menopause um, is 52. Could Monica from Buffalo actually be having hot flashes at 33, or is that seems a little bit premature? But I don't. I, it, I, it's a little early. Men, the average age of menopause is 42, but it's fair game and not considered abnormal after the age of 40. So she may be someone who's going to be an early on the early side of menopause, and she could very well be having some um, symptoms. Uh, now it's possible, but I also would encourage her to um, look at uh, to speak with her physician about checking um, her thyroid function because that is a can mimic um, some of those uh, vasomotor or, or or flushing symptoms that also is associated with the perimenopause. Oh, okay. Um, and just while we're on this, while you're regrouping to finish that thought, uh, she also mentioned her daughter had a period at eight. You said most girls start at twelve, but they could be younger. So this, but they this could is, be younger. Yep. So she and could that, have. This could be totally normal that her daughter's. It, it, it seems like there's a lot of girls trending younger for periods uh, lately. I, I used to work at an all-girls school, and I think actually eight, nine, and ten was about the average. Like yep, there, fourth, there are fourth girls, and fifth grade seemed to be, yep. which it used to seem like 20 years ago girls would have it a little, a couple years later, but now it seems like it's earlier. It is, and there's some there's some thoughts that that, that may be related to environmental exposures to uh, hormones, but again, that's a, another big conversation to have at some point. All right, well, I want to ask you one question, Diva Baddick, um, before we get on to the 
perimenopausal and menopause because this relates to the women living with diabetes. Halle Berry was like 47 years old when she had this, what she called her miracle baby recently. Now, we know she's living with diabetes. She's never really admitted if it's type 1 or type 2. There's been a lot of speculation either way. But at the time, she said she thought she was perimenopausal. So I'm just curious, like, um, because I, I read all the time now about all these women having babies over the age of 50, uh, what's, what are your thoughts on that? And could someone be perimenopausal and still get pregnant? So someone can be perimenopausal and still get pregnant. That's, I think, I was, I was probably dragging on a bit when I was explaining things. But you're, what happens is you're, you're still ovulating. You just may not be ovulating every month. So it is possible in one of those ovulatory cycles that uh, pregnancy can occur. So that's not so, that's not so unusual. Um, I mean, it's, it's unusual, but it's not um, startling. Uh, the women having 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 babies over the age of 50, um, the 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 one thing that's that that is often the case then because ovarian function and ovarian reserve does start to wane, unfortunately after the age of 35. But by the time a woman gets to 50, I wouldn't say it's impossible for her to become pregnant, but oftentimes those women are conceiving with um, donated donated eggs or donor eggs and not their own eggs. Okay, so that's the difference right there. Yep. Okay, well, that's good news. All right, so now you're just going to explain menopause, and then we're going to go right to the phones and start taking our callers. Super. Okay, so the perimenopausal period, things are getting a little bit wacky. A normal, a normal. you asked me if it was normal to have irregular bleeding. Right. Um, it's, it's expected, but not normal. Sort of a normal menopausal transition where we don't need, a gynecologist doesn't need to be involved um, and probably wouldn't come and complain, is if you have less frequent, lighter bleeding that eventually just, dwindles off and goes away. Um, more frequent, heavier bleeding doesn't necessarily mean uh, uh, what, we, what women always worry about, that it's, a, that it's a cancer, a uterine cancer or an ovarian cancer or something along those lines. It, it, it's most of the time a benign occurrence related to these, um, missed, these missed cycles or these anovulatory cycles causing a heavier buildup in the lining of the uterus or polyps that have formed or symptomatic fibroids that are causing the bleeding. So it's not always a, 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 a scary pathology. Um, so as we get to the as we go on and get to the average age of 52, these irregularities of our periods will go on and then eventually we'll we'll stop. And uh, when you've gone for one full year without a period, then we make the diagnosis of menopause. And that's when you might become Suzanne Summers and start taking bioidentical um, hormones. And that's when, and that's when you would, you know, would you would you would consider having a conversation with your physician about the options uh, and the risks and benefits for you of uh, hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. Well, I love it. Okay, let's stop right there because uh, we're going to go to the phones in a minute. But first, we're going to hear one more, another song from the Empire soundtrack. Uh, it made Empire was a mid-season uh, replacement for Fox and ended up being a cultural phenomenon. Let's listen to another great song from the soundtrack. <laughs> I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek, and tonight my special guest is Dr. Andrea Chisholm, and we're talking about everything from menopause to menstruation to maybe we'll even throw in men at some point, I guess. <laughs> All right, I don't think so on this show. But, hey, when it comes to aging, friend star Lisa Kudrow says, at 45, you know what you're doing, but you're still not done. So with that note, Dr. Andrea, we're going to go to the phones, and we're going to talk to Catherine calling in from New Orleans. Hello, Catherine. Hey, Max. Hi, Dr. Susan. How are you? Hi. I'm great. Hi, Catherine. So, Catherine, give us a little backstory on um, a little bit about your life before you ask the question so our listeners can relate to where you're coming from. Well, uh, I've had diabetes for 46 years, and um, um, I went through all of that. Um, I had, you know, my periods, my time. Um, I do know and remember well that it brought on some stress, some frustration, uh, you know, hated going through it, had a lot of pain, all that good stuff. 
um, and um, did it that for many, many years. But then it got to be to the point where it was severe. It was severe bleeding, and it did last longer than seven days. So my uh, gynecologist lovingly gave me a partial hysterectomy, and uh, then shortly thereafter, not many years after that, I went into menopause, and now I am past menopause, and I started hormone therapy, and I just wondered, as a diabetic, do girls and women, uh, should they be aware that uh, these times, uh, for instance, uh, taking hormones, does that do anything to the blood sugar? The, the, the period of time before a woman has a menstrual cycle, the, those couple of weeks where you're, you're, mm, you're not very nice and you don't feel well and you just want to scream and holler at everybody, that, that puts a lot of stress on the body and the diabetes, I can imagine, right? No? Yes, it, actually it does. Um, at different stages in a in in your menstrual cycle, um, or if you're postmenopausal and you're on on hormone replacement therapy, um, but definitely when you're cycling, um, due to uh, the um, the hormone changes, your it can it can affect your blood sugars, and it can either and that varies from person to person how it affects your mm-hmm. blood sugars, and it also varies um, it can vary month to month, even within the within the with the same person. Um, it, it can make your you can make you have episodes of hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia, mm. um, and this is thought to happen because of the the temporary insulin resistance resistance that happens in response to the changing estrogen and progesterone levels. Um, so as you're going through your cycle and as the as the hormone levels are changing at different times during your cycle, it can induce this temporary insulin resistance and can really wreak havoc with your blood sugars. And so, again, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. And so women women need to be aware of this, knowing knowing what listening to what you just said, they need to be aware of this during this particular time, at that, that time, to, to watch out for that, to maybe do an extra one or two or three blood sugars a day just to see. Yeah, it's it's actually it's actually a, it's actually a very good idea for women to do that, just to chart during that time, so that they can they can get a sense of of what's go, of what's going on for them. Um, the tricky thing is though is you can't necessarily plan for the next month though because it yeah. may be the opposite. Um, so, right. but yes, yeah, so you bring up a, a, an excellent point um, about uh, you know being aware during that um, premenstrual phase. So about day fourteen, so that second half of your menstrual cycle is really where we see that impact. Um, can I ask you a question? Who who talks to a female patient about that? Because at Divabetic, this comes up all the time, and most of the women, have, when we when we mention it at a meeting or a live outreach event, they're so relieved because, like Catherine was saying, they don't know what's going on. They're doing everything right, and there's still these unexpected fluctuations. And when you look at all the basic information and pamphlets and books on diabetes, I don't really see a lot written about uh, the menstruation, the cycles that women are having in their blood sugars. Yeah. Wow. Max, so who, would they, I, who would tell Catherine? Is it her endocrinologist or is it the gynecologist? I think it. I think it would depend. I mean, I think it would depend. I would. I would. I would think that um, it, it becomes that little bit of a gray zone, right, where the endocrinologists don't usually tend to foray into the women's health care right. issues, and gynecologists don't often sort of foray into the endocrinology zone. So, unfortunately, women are sort of left in a little bit of this gray zone. Well, you know, I mean, that's I would, why I, would I do divabetic. With... That is exactly why I do divabetic because I do yeah. think women have an uphill battle with some of these things related to diabetes care, and it bothers me that people aren't addressing it. It's just not common knowledge because I can't even tell you the frustration I deal with when I'm out at an event and just hearing people feel so overwhelmed and helpless, and then when they realize that, hey, it might have to do with this, it changes their whole attitude. Yeah. There needs to be, Max and Doctor, there needs to be more uh, put out there uh, in literature and 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 told by doctors, gynecologists, and endocrinologists about that when it comes to a woman and diabetes. I really, really think that that needs to be done. I think that's an excellent suggestion, Catherine. Yes, Catherine. Yes. Did you have any more questions? No, I, those were my questions, Max. Thank. You. Well, you were fantastic. Thanks for being on the show tonight. Sure. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. You, thanks, nice Doctor Chisholm. Are you ready for another one? Sure. Dr. Chisholm, because we've got Taryn on the line from Boston. Hi, Taryn. Hi, Max. Hi, Dr. Chisholm. How are you? I'm great, Taryn. How are you? 
I'm great, thank you. Um, so, so first, my tell us question, a little bit about your experience hmm? living with diabetes, Taryn, so the listeners can relate. Oh, sure, yes. I was diagnosed at the age of 33 um, with type 2 diabetes, um, and that was about three and a half years ago. And, um, you know, it's thanks to Divabetic, actually, I have to give a large, a lot of credit to Divabetic for helping turn my attitude around. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've, I've, you know, been, um, through a lot of things and I've been, you know, obviously working, um, on lots of things. Um, and yeah, I, um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure, but yeah, I, um, um, uh, <laughs> well, you've been dealing with the idea of you're a type one or type two, or maybe even the type one and a half, yeah. correct? Right, so I have I have that going on where I'm actually um, on insulin, and um, I um, my my doctor has suggested that it's pretty it's very possible that I may have some kind of pancreatic defect or something like this that um, has inhibited the production of insulin. Um, so it's kind of I, I do need to look further into exactly uh, what's going on there, but. Um, but I do, I have been able to, you know, I do, I'm fortunate to live in Boston where I have the Jocelyn, uh, center. So that's been really wonderful for me. Okay. So what was your question for Dr. Chisholm? Yeah. Yeah. So I, well, I kind of, I changed my question a little bit because I, you know, it's, it's a little bit more in the gynecological, uh, you sure. know, um, yeah. That's and, good for and me. And so recently, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I actually recently was diagnosed with fibroids. And, you know, that was a, a little bit of a shock. Um, and I was just wondering, in your experience, is there some kind of a connection uh, between fibroids and uh, diabetes? And, and is there something that I can do, um, I don't know, in your experience, you know, um, have you have you noticed that kind of a connection, or is there is there one is there one? <laughs> so so um, I mean that's that's a that's a that's a great that's a great question. Um, yeah. I, I to the best of my knowledge, I'm not yeah. I'm not aware of any sort of direct uh, cause and effect scientific relationship mm-hmm. between type two diabetes and fibroids. Um, yeah. There is, however. Um, uh, you know, an, epi- an epidemiologic di- uh, um, uh, uh, demographic that has yeah. an increased incidence of both. So, African American women are at an increased risk increased risk of fibroids, and also at an increased risk of of, um, mm. of diabetes. So, that mm. would be maybe where I, we could call we could, that that could be a, a, a parallel. But otherwise, no mm-hmm. no no real cause and effect. Although I have to say, you know, there is really just so much. I want to acknowledge as a as a, as a physician, there really is a, so much that we just don't understand about the human body, um, and we oh, yeah. know that you know uh, fibroids are certainly not an auto are not classified as an autoimmune disease, but there definitely mm. is something that happens to allow for one of your smooth muscle cells in your uterus to grow and develop mm-hmm. into these benign tumors. Right, and and, and unfortunately, being still, I'm 37, so I'm not uh, in menopause yet. Um, and I still would like to keep the option of possibly having a child. All of the options that are available to me seem to be pretty, um, well, they seem to be geared more towards people who definitely aren't going to have children. Um, And so I've actually turned towards uh, Eastern medicine, like acupuncture. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know. I'm not sure if there's any, you know, if there's uh, really, if that's something that, might make a difference, but um, I also have heard too t- that I should probably get my um, levels checked, my hormone levels to see what's going on. Um, what would you recommend? Are, well, are you still are you still getting your periods monthly? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I certainly, you know, you're, you're over 35, which, you know, mm-hmm. is just still so young, but in the reproductive <laughs> biology world mm-hmm. that starts to classify you as of advanced maternal age, which just seems so preposterous mm-hmm. to me. Um, yeah. But, it, but I, I would, I, you know, I would definitely, I would definitely uh, recommend that you, you know, sit down with your gynecologist and really, and really talk with him or her um, about, about your, you know, desire to maintain your fertility and um mm-hmm. you know about how what what would be indicated to to check on to check on that for you wonderful thank you you're welcome and good luck 
I'm sorry, Dr. Chisholm, what other yes. options do they provide for people like Taryn, like uh, other women? You know, so you mean for, fi- for fibroids? Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of really great options um, for – well, the 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 bit the the option the option for symptom control. Are you having heavy bleeding? Not not no. really. No. Okay. The mm-hmm. the the option for symptom control or heavy bleeding is hormonal. So either oral contraceptives or progesterone mm-hmm. only, uh, um, uh, either injectable medications, mm-hmm. uh, or um, uh, sometimes if your uterine cavity is not too big, the Mirena, which is a progesterone containing mm-hmm. IUD, um, mm-hmm. but. Oftentimes, what's recommended to 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 women is a myomectomy, or a mm-hmm. surgical procedure where the fibroids are removed. Um, sometimes, yeah. just expectant management. If the fibroids aren't that big or they're not affecting the cavity of the uterus, then we don't see them interfere mm-hmm. interfere too much with your ability mm-hmm. to get pregnant and maintain a maintain a pregnancy. But if they're mm-hmm. significant and large, or especially yeah. extending into the cavity of the uterus, um, because that's yeah. associated with um, an increased risk of miscarriage, we usually remove want, recommend removing. Them. Yeah. Mm. But things like yeah. <laughs> but things like the uterine artery embolization, where they they mm-hmm. they block off the uterine arteries to induce shrinkage of the fibroids, um, or endometrial ablation, which uh, sort of cauterizes the lining of the uterus so you don't bleed from the fibroids, um, and then obviously mm-hmm. clearly hysterectomy. All of those things mm-hmm. are are not indicated in women who want to go on to have children because it can mm-hmm. affect the way the uterus functions. Sure. Yeah, and I've been looking into all kinds of Eastern medicine, you know, like herbs and things, and I, I do I do want to make sure before I take anything that I consult my doctor. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend that. I mean, as far as Eastern, Eastern medicine is concerned, I mean, it's been around for an awfully long time. It's been around yeah. for a lot longer than Western medicine yeah. has. And I think yeah. that it, it, it definitely, a combination of both Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy is um, really helpful and usually how you can uh, achieve the best, um, the best results for yourself. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, thanks for being on the show, Tara, and we appreciate it. Well, thank you, Nick. Um, Dr. Chisholm, before we go to our next caller, uh, what are some of the common things you see with women in diabetes in your practice? I've read that um, frequent yeast infections are common uh, with some women with diabetes and some women with prediabetes. So I'm curious to know, are there other things that you would think would be common among women with diabetes? Uh, The yeast infections are are, are definitely are definitely a very a very common one. Um, And those signify what that your blood sugars are a little uh, on the high side. Is that what we're seeing when we see a yeast infection? That is what we're seeing when when we see a yeast infection. Yeah, women with women with um, diabetes will often have recurrent will often have recurrent um, yeast infections because of that. I can't I, I, at the moment. I'm not. I can't think of anything else specifically related to women who are women who are diabetic um, that puts them outside of any other typical complaints that come into the gynecologist. But I'll keep that in the back of my mind as we go forward, and maybe I'll something will pop up to me. All right. Well, I'm going to give you a musical interlude then, everybody, okay. because <laughs> one of my favorite artists who's appeared on Conqueror is Estelle. Not Adele, like I said last month, but Estelle. She's a British songwriter who won a Grammy, and here she is doing a wonderful duet. Special guest, Dr. Andrea Chisholm, and we're talking about getting to know your body and everything related to menopause, menstruation, and I need another M, music tonight. How's that? Um, Dr. Chisholm, um, we spoke to Catherine a little earlier, and I mentioned Suzanne Summers and this whole bioidentical hormone replacements, and, and she said she was taking some kind of hormones. Can you explain what, why would someone want to do that? And if they do read these books by Suzanne Summers and Dr. Oz and anyone else, how should they take that information to their doctor? Um, so the, the hor- hormone replacement therapy um, is uh, – uh, 
what it what it is replacing your hormones so as you go into the menopause and your um, estrogen levels are declining uh it can induce certain symptoms. Um, the, some of the ones that I can, uh, some of the more significant ones are, are, are vasomotor symptoms, so the night sweats, the night sweats, the hot flashes, um, significant, uh, um, uh, some significant irritability can sometimes happen, um, and some labile moods. Uh, Vaginal dryness is another big one that happens, um, and atrophy of the the vagina and the surrounding tissues, uh, and then increased risk of um, uh, certain certain medical conditions, um, including uh, bone loss and osteoporosis, um, heart disease, and uh, even recent scientific evidence has shown uh, hormone replacement therapy can help um, uh, prevent uh, type 2 diabetes from developing in women. Um, wow. So, do you recommend it? Well, you know, I there there was a there was a big push several decades ago where every woman that ha- hit menopause just got put on estrogen, got put on hormones because it was supposed to solve everything. Um, we've learned over the last the last decade that um, th- that's or the last couple of decades that that's that's not necessarily the that's not necessarily the case. There was a big reaction. Uh, uh, several years ago, after a big trial came out called the um, the Women's Health Initiative, where where uh, there was suggestion the the suggestion the, the the data suggested the increased risk of breast cancer um, on hormone replacement therapy, and everybody sort of took women off of hormone replacement therapy. But in the last several years, we've realized that um, really addressing a case by case basis and and assessing for a woman's inherent risk for developing breast cancer or developing heart disease or developing bone loss. Um, it really needs to be tailored to the individual individual, individual uh, person, um, and then certainly women who are who are markedly symptomatic with the symptoms of menopause. Um, you know, I definitely will have a conversation with them about hormone replacement therapy. Um, and what do you think of Suzanne Summers? I think she. I think Suzanne Summers is 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 fabulous, and I think she's done an incredible amount for bringing you know the whole conversation of menopause out into the out into the forefront and and having women be 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 bigger advocates for themselves. Well, did you ever hear that she actually was watching The View one day and she saw Rosie O'Donnell going off on Elizabeth Hasselhoff? I can't even speak tonight, Hasselhoff, and so she quickly emailed Rosie O'Donnell. And said, "I think you're in menopause, menopause, and you do. You need to. You need to get on these uh, hormones." And she went on them, and it, it apparently made her the nice Rosie. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a real. You know, I, I. I sort of always have this joke that I say there's just no way that Mother Nature is uh, is is female, <laughs> because the menopausal transition is just so difficult for for some women, um, and some women are really affected with the uh, the mood issues, um, and uh, yeah, hormone replacement can can definitely help that. But in some women, it's contraindicated, and so you need to potentially seek other other uh, options to to help manage those symptoms is there does your period kind of give you a preview on what your menopause experience is going to be meaning if you had a light or mild period you're going to have a light or mild menopause and if you had a difficult cramping and all that then it might be a more painful experience through menopause or does that have nothing to do with each other What's a little bit more predictive is what your mood has done around um, around your your major uh, female transitions in your life. So the onset of your period, your premenstrual symptom, how you did after after pregnancy, um, how you did after pregnancy is a big marker for your emotional uh, piece into menopause. Um, because uh, when you're after you have a baby and you're if if you're breastfeeding, your estrogen levels are very low, uh, similar to how they are in the menopausal period. So that can be a, that can be somewhat of a predictor, although there's other things influencing, like lack of sleep is influencing how you're feeling after you have a baby. Um, but the bleeding, the quality of the bleeding um, and the amount that you bleed really, really doesn't have much to do um, with the menopausal transition. And is there any similarity between generations, like my mother or my grandmother would uh, give me some signal of what I might be expecting or no? Yeah, the timing, the timing of the transition to menopause can be can be inherited and and the severity of it as well, but that's not but that's not absolute. Okay, well on that note, I think it's time to bring in Jessica from Ohio. Hello. Hold on one second. Here she is. Hi Jessica. Hi. How is everyone? Good. Hi, Welcome Jessica. to the show. 
Thank you for having me. We were applauding the cramps. (laughs) (laughs) So um, tell us a little bit about your experience living with diabetes before you ask your question, Jessica. Um, I am a type 1 diabetic. I was diagnosed when I was 5 years old, which was uh, 22 years ago. It's been um, a journey of ups and downs, um, highs and lows, blood sugar and otherwise. Um, I was very resistant to my diabetes when I was younger, and um, thanks to my wonderful husband, who I've talked about multiple times with Max and his support, Mm -hmm. um, both for my husband and Max, (laughs) I was able to really embrace my diabetes and um, grow into it and start trying to help others talk about my experience, but also at the same time, you know, learn where I could go with it. So um, just trying to be the best diabetic I can, which is sometimes really, really difficult, especially when you're female. (laughs) So, okay, I guess my question. Mm -hmm. Um, So what is saved for probably a whole other story, but um, about, I would say, I think I'm about three years ago, I actually had a tubal ligation. I had my tubes tied for multiple different reasons, um, diabetes being one of those. Um, And from what I'm gathering from everybody so far, it sounds like there's a lot of, uh, I guess, a lack of information about hormones and how it really affects your diabetes, as well as I know a lot of my doctors, um, they know about diabetes, but they don't know a lot, you know, unless they're my endocrinologist, that's not their specialty. Mm-hmm. And so when I had my tubes tied, I noticed changes immediately not just with my hormone levels, but with my diabetes. It's been very hard to manage. Um, I was starting to hit lows I've never seen before, Um, one that Max and I actually talked about, which was very scary. Um, And I didn't know if having your tubes tied and what it does to your hormones in general can affect your diabetes, and if it does, how. Yeah, so there's a – there's there's – information out there and evidence out there to suggest that women who have um, tubal ligations um, can have a bit of a sooner progression to um, to menopause. Not not that you're in menopause. I'm not saying that, but overall, yeah. <laughs> maybe it, maybe it, would, it shortens the time uh, for you know makes it a little bit like you know one to one year to six months sooner than you would have sort of biologically been programmed to do that. Um, the, there's some thought that there's some uh, potential decrease in the blood flow because the ovary is dually supplied by um, uh, vessels that go um, both sort of past the fallopian tubes and then also come from um, uh, another source. you know, I think there's some things that we just don't understand in medicine. Um, but I, but I have anecdotally heard uh, a lot of women uh, when they've had some sort of other gynecologic surgery that didn't quote unquote have to do with their ovaries that they do have some transient changes in their hormone levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I've there's not a lot of literature out there for it um, to mm-hmm. explain it, and I think that that's true for a lot of things in women's health. We don't have an awful lot of good data out there to make really strong uh, recommendations or commentary on. Um, but going back to what I had uh, had said when I a- answered Catherine's question, you know, we do know that uh, variations in the hormone levels uh, also affects, um, you know, insulin resistance, and so it very, very well could be affecting um, uh, your sugars that way. That's very interesting. I've asked and looked, and, you know, you can never trust everything you read or hear, Yeah. Um, and so it's been very hard, so I really appreciate, you know, insight into it, and a lot of my question, like I said, you know, I think every single one of us tonight have touched base on kind of the hormonal issue and the hormones, and obviously that has a huge effect on us as diabetics and as yeah. diabetic women. 
And, you know, there's just so much, and there really just is so much that we don't, I mean, there really is just so much that we don't understand, which is really, which is really, which is really frustrating. I mean, we can herald back to make, to, to sort of say there has to be this connection somehow, because if we look at women who have polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, that's, you know, hallmarked by uh, anovulation and imbalances in estrogen and progesterone levels, especially progesterone levels, and um, uh, increased risk of insulin resistance. And we know that there's some interaction between insulin-like growth factor and the female hormones, although the pathways haven't been absolutely established. So, um, you know, there's a, there's there's definitely there's definitely some yet to still be determined and explained uh, uh, association between um, fluctuating female hormones or female hormones in general and um, you know uh, bl- uh, blood sugar levels and insulin resistance. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show, Jessica. Um, before you go, though, Jessica, did you ever um, – I want to get personal for a minute. Were you ever on birth control? I was, and I actually um, have some wonderful stories. I was actually on birth control um, since I was in my late teens. Um, I did the pill, and I did um, the NuvaRing, um, and – Lastly, I did um, Mirena, which um, kind of started the hormone fluctuation. Actually, yeah. um, there's kind of a whole syndrome associated, quote-unquote, on the Internet um, with Mirena and hormone fluctuations as well. But, yeah, I was on it until I had my tubes tied um, pretty consistently since I was, like I said, like in my late teens up until about 25 years old. So someone asked earlier, um, Dr. Andrea, I think it was from uh, it was Gwen from Washington. I'm going through my notes. How long is too long to be on the pill, and can it stop your chances of having a baby? So I want to um, a- I would like you to answer that while you kind of comment on what Jessica just said as well. Sure. Um, so I'll answer that question first, and I'll, I'll just sort of answer it in general for all women in general. Um, there, there really isn't too long to be on the birth control pill. Um, whether you've been on the birth control pill for three months or 20 years, uh, coming off the pill, uh, your cycles will resume uh, normalcy within um, three months. So if you are, if you had uh, regular ovulatory cycles before you went on the pill, likely you'll have them when you come off the pill, unless you come off the pill once you've sort of entered into the peri- into the perimenopause. We do know that being on the pill consecutively for at least 10 years is actually protective against ovarian cancer and endometrial cancer. And now what the about biggest- some of the the uh, birth control options that Jessica was mentioning. Yeah, so so it's really the combined contraceptive, the combined hormonal contraceptive. So like the oral contraceptive, the patch, the ring, those are the those are the ones that are that are suppressing the ovulation and and protecting against um, uh, ovarian cancer and thinning the lining of the uterus, so thereby protecting against endometrial cancer. Um, the the Mirena, uh, which is the um, a progesterone containing uh, IUD that's inserted in the lining of the uterus. That doesn't impact ovulation, so it won't offer the same uh, ovarian cancer protection, uh, but it thins the lining of the uterus, so it would inherently give the same protection against um, endometrial cancer as the combined contraceptive would. And just one more question, and it could be completely out of left field, but in Taryn's case, where we, we heard her story earlier, would birth control be an option for her with fibroids or no? The oral contraceptive will, will help manage the irregular bleeding, with the fibroids, um, there's some there's some uh, expert opinion that actually the hormones in the oral contraceptive will cause the especially the progesterone will cause the fibroids to um, increase in size, um, but uh, we but it's very often used to help manage the irregular bleeding. Okay, great. Well, thank you, and Jessica, thanks for being on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. We lost her for a minute, but we're going to go to our last caller. It's Sherry from Los Angeles. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Max. How are you? Hi, Dr. I'm good. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for calling in. Tell us a little bit about your experience living with diabetes, and then um, please ask Dr. Andrea your question. Okay. Um, My name is Sherry, and we already established that one. (laughs) I've had diabetes for 30 years approximately, Um, not gestational diabetes, but after my daughter 
was born, I went to go get diet pills to lose all that baby weight, and he's like, no, I can't prescribe you anything because you're borderline diabetic. And so that started my journey. And um, through the years, um, ups and downs and kind of in denial, um, get to my 28th year, and I had a partial foot amputation. There's a lot mixed up in that. I was I did I used to smoke. I was in control of my diabetes. Well, I got a cut and didn't know that it was infected, and the um, partial amputation happened. And so now I'm living better, taking better care of myself, eating better, um, and just you know just living life much better, <laughs> keeping myself well and, and understanding that if diabetes doesn't take care of, I'll, it'll take care of me if I don't take care of it. So that's sort of my story. And my question was, um, I'm into a lot of natural medicines, and I try not to take, sometimes I do have infections, so I'll need to take antibiotics. And so I don't want to take antibiotics or anything before I actually really need to. So I wanted to ask a question about, like, natural things, like with um, the menopause, using, like, Valium rooms, the natural medicines. How does that affect your levels and, and um, you know, just diabetes in general? Okay. Um, I just want to ask you one question, Shari, if I might, just to go back yes. to your diagnosis. Um, your your pregnancy, was um, did, you ha- did you have any diabetes during that pregnancy? No, no gestational no. at all. And, and how big was your baby? She was just six pounds, two ounces. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I know. Because I was like, they said I was like out of the norm because I didn't yeah. have it, and nobody in my family had diabetes yeah. at that time. Because yeah. because gestational, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're aware, gestational diabetes is, is definitely a risk factor for developing diabetes yeah. in your lifetime. And not being diabetic during pregnancy, but having a, a baby greater than nine pounds, it also puts you at risk for diabetes in your lifetime. So it's interesting. You sort of were the opposite of both things. That's pretty much my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty uh, much me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to hear about about the amputation, but it does sound like you're like you're doing great now, which is um, fantastic. Oh yeah. I, I just I love living. So I, yeah. I do it with a zeal. So, um, you know, like like I had said before, the the, the herbal the herbal remedies and you know, uh, looking towards Eastern medicine, uh, you know, I think that the, that it does a, a lot for um, a lot for prevention and a lot for well being. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's great that we that we have a Western medicine when we need it, especially things like antibiotics. But I think that mm-hmm. you know, changing changing lifestyle and and seeking alternative uh, methods for prevention is always a, a really great idea. Um, Mm-hmm. In terms of the herbal remedies for the herbal remedies for um, for, for menopausal symptoms, uh, mm-hmm. one of the very popular ones, especially for uh, uh, vasomotor symptoms or the hot flashes, is black cohosh. Um, mm-hmm. Black cohosh actually is uh, in Germany. Germany is is very big on um, their you know sort of uh, homeopathic uh, remedies and herbal mer- remedies, and it's it's um, uh, prescribed. Very very commonly um, in Germany, and can be bought over the counter here. Um, black mm-hmm. cohosh does have some. Um, most of the let me just say that mo- black cohosh and some of the other herbs that are often prescribed for um, for, men- for menopausal symptoms, especially for the vasomotor symptoms and some of the irritability and mood changes, um, mm-hmm. the, the, they they they. All have some estrogen-like activity in them. They're they're okay. either phytoestrogens or plant-based estrogens, or they have some estrogen-modulating, mediated hormonal activity. Um, so I I don't know of any evidence, but I would say that sort of logically taking that one step from where I was talking before about the cycle and hormonal changes, I mm-hmm. there is the possibility that it could inter interfere and interact with your blood sugars. Although I I can't say that with any true authority. Okay. Um, okay. And that that would be something that I would just definitely definitely say that um, you know it, it would be something that I would want you to speak with at least your endocrinologist about um, in okay. terms of how it would how how it would affect um, the medications that you're on um, for your diabetes. Does that activity level affect it at all? Like if she were to become more active, or you know, on a, in, does exercise kind of reduce any of these symptoms, or is that not an option either? Well, you know, it's always a, it's a, it, menopause is always a really good time to sort of take check 
and, and even during the perimenopausal period and just make sure that you have really good lifestyle habits because, you know, in menopause with the, with the waning estrogen levels, you know, we do know that there's increase in weight gain, which especially in diabetic women can lead to increases in insulin, in insulin requirements, insulin resistance, um, in, uh, and also can lead to that, you know, uh, truncal obesity, which is a risk factor across the board, diabetic or not, for the development of um, cardiovascular disease. So exercise is really important to help prevent and also to help prevent osteoporosis. It's bone building, um, weight-bearing exercise, strength training, super important for women as we age. Um, but specifically um, for the management of, of the, the vasomotor symptoms, exercise doesn't really contribute that much. But doing things like limiting your alcohol intake uh, and um, uh, 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 um, is also is also really is also really helpful um, for uh, the vasomotor symptoms. Um, the 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 also the other thing too is is we know that exercise and good nutrition also does help does help mood and and exercise certainly does help sleep and and those are things that can also be interrupted in menopause. Okay. And Sherry, did you have any more questions? Um, yeah, I wanted to ask a question um, also about uh, mental health. I have a, uh, a friend who is going through menopause, and she is actually bipolar. And yeah. so I wanted to kind of give her some – she's not diabetic, but she does have a history in her family of being di- diabetic. You know, her family does. And I just wanted to kind of steer her in the right direction because can you imagine being bipolar, having – uh, yeah, um, effects from menopause all both at the same time. Yeah, are most women bipolar when they're in menopause? I'm like, <laughs> yes. Can you imagine a monster? <laughs> yes. Um, I would definitely suggest to your to your to your friend that she um, that she finds a gynecologist who's comfortable having discussions around hormone replacement therapy. Um, it, she 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 given given the um, the underlying uh, uh, bipolar, uh, we certainly we I would certainly suspect that uh, with the hormonal fluctuations that are going to start to happen with the declining estrogen levels impacting her serotonin levels. Um, um, that might make the transition a little bit a little bit more challenging for her from that perspective. Um, and then I apologize; I forgot the second piece. What was the second piece? Um, it was just it was that was it about her no. It was bipolar. she had the bipolar, but something else, and she was going into menopause. She doesn't have diabetes, but no, well, she uses natural <laughs> natural medications, <laughs> let's say, to treat it, and I don't think it makes it any better at all. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we get sometimes we get to a point where um you know the 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 herbal medication um the herbal medication isn't isn't significant enough and it may be for for your friend that it mm-hmm. it it won't it may it, her risk factors may be such or she may decide that she doesn't want to be on hormones and maybe she needs to come from the direction of some more pharmacologic support for the serotonin imbalances rather than from the from the hormonal side. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank Great. you so much. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for being on the show, Sherry. Hey, Dr. Chisholm, you were amazing, and we're running out of time. You know, I just have to say, um, in reflecting on this quickly, where should women go to find out more resources since, you know, so many of the women who called in tonight are really tr- struggling and being very proactive in their search for information? Do you have a favorite source you'd like to send women to? Well, I think that um, the, the 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 National American Menopause, the North American Menopause um, Society, or NAMS, NAMS, is a great is a great resource um, for women um, for the menopausal transition. Okay. Um, and uh, that would probably be the the first place that I would that I would send people. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You know, we're going to have to have you back on because okay. this was a really great uh, conversation and, tonight. Uh, the, the one thing that I didn't get a chance to say that I want to just put a, put a plug for, since you were talking about vaginas in the very beginning, that menopause in itself um, causes thinning of the walls of the vagina and decreased sensation, and the, the impact of uh, diabetes can exacerbate those things. 
Um, so that's a, a, very, a really important of se- piece of sexual health that women with diabetes should uh, All right, pay attention to. Well, then we're going to have to have back and talk about that again. You were sensational. Remember, every diva has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. Thank you for tuning in. I want to thank all my guests for being a part of the show tonight. Let's stay happy and healthy together. Here's one more song from the Empire soundtrack. Don't even got a light. It don't matter because we keep it private. Every time I eat you, why they keep it lighter? Keep it Wanna make me wait around for months? Oh, you go first, I can go second, yeah. but I ain't sweating. Yeah.